Pray with me. Lord, we come into your presence this morning. We want to be before you. We want to be present to you. We want to experience your goodness and your nearness. Captivate our hearts, Lord. Stir us to see you, that we might be strengthened on this journey through Lent. Lord, sustain us. Amen. I traveled on, seeing the hill where lay my expectation. Along it was, in weary way, the cave of desperation. I left on the one and on the other side, the rock of pride. And so I came to Fancy's Meadow, strode with many a flower. Fain would I have here made my abode, but I was quick in the hour. So came and there got through with me. That led me to the wild of passion, which some call the wold. A wasted place, but sometimes rich. Here, I was robbed of all my gold, save one good angel, which my friend had tied close to my side. At length, I got unto the gladsome hill where lay my hope, where lay my heart, and climbing still, when I had gained the brow and top, a lake of brackish waters on the ground was all I found. With that, abashed and struck with many a sting of swarming fears, I fell and cried, Alas, my king, can both the way and end be tears? Yet, taking heart, I rose and then perceived I was deceived. My hill was further. So I flung away, yet heard a cry, just as I went, None goes that way and lives. If that be all, said I, after so foul a journey, death is fair and but a chair. For whoever may have been thinking it, no, this isn't scripture. What I've just read to you is a poem by George Herbert. Um, who was himself an Anglican priest and poet in England right around the same time as Shakespeare. There are two reasons why I have quoted this short poem as a sort of introduction to my sermon today. The first is that I believe this poem captures something essential about the Lenten season. We are on a pilgrimage, and this poem sets us up to engage with that journey. Here during Lent, we wander like Jesus in the wilderness. We have considered the gravity of our sins, rubbed ashes on our foreheads, and set off on our journey, leaving behind some of the clutter of our ordinary lives. 
we're on a journey of faith, hoping to arrive at Easter with a newfound sense of dependence on the Spirit, a holy closeness to Christ in life, death, and resurrection, and a deeper resonance with the Father's love-bound will for us. I think Herbert's poem recalls some of the highs and lows of this Lenten journey. The second reason why I started off with this poem today is that I needed to get your imaginative juices pumping. Right from the get-go, Herbert catches us up into the narrative, starting us, as it would seem, in the middle of the journey by the opening line, I traveled on. From there, he engages our imagination further by presenting this journey as a walk through different phases of life, from struggling in that place of insecurity between pride and despair, through leisure, the hurry of duty and obligation, and then into the dangerous, suffocating thicket of self-gratification, which our traveler barely escapes with one good angel, which a friend had tied close to his side. This, by the way, is an ingenious pun referring to the angel imprinted on the gold coin at that time in uh, you know, the, the currency of the UK. But anyway, um, yet, all the while, this wanderer like us has set his eyes on a hill of hope. Despite being waylaid in different areas, distracted by desires and concerns, this traveler presses on to the promise of the presence of the king at any cost. It is because each of these themes are so relatable that this poem helps us to perceive something true about our lives through our imaginations. Certainly, each of us has felt the emptiness of disappointment. To have worked so hard towards a goal only to find upon arrival that the goal does not grant us what it had promised. We can taste the salt and feel the weariness alongside this wanderer who is stuck after such a long journey in a brackish bog. We too have asked God, can both the way and end be tears? And because this poem helps us to empathize with this fellow pilgrim through these tribulations, we also feel a shared hope. As in the final lines the poem uh, of the poem, our hero takes off once more toward the holy hill of expectation, regardless of cost or consequence. By pairing the shared human experience of longing with these familiar images of shifting landscapes along the traveler's path, Herbert engages our imagination so that we can experience a resilient hope. We too can look at disappointment and say, no, I'm pressing further up and further in until God pulls me home in his chariot of fire. This is the sort of truth that you can only apprehend through the imagination. This is part of how God has made us. So then, with a stage set for us to picture ourselves as being on a pilgrimage throughout Lent, and with our minds and hearts primed to see truth in this new way, this different disposition, 
I'd like to direct our attention to another poem, to Psalm 27. Here, we have a poem that aims to teach our hearts to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. It is a psalm that celebrates confidence and security. We don't know the context for this psalm or anything about its use in worship in ancient Israel. During Advent, I, I gave you one of the songs of ascent, and we knew that that's one of the things they used as they processed up the mountain. All we know of this one is we get a little note above it, a little superscript that just says, of David, which probably means he wrote it, but could mean any number of things. So, why this psalm is that I don't, it's, it's not that it is a psalm for Lent or anything like that. It is a psalm for any time of year, but there are some of these, some of the themes, and as I prayed about it this week as I was preparing for this sermon, some of these themes just hit me as really resonant with our experience at this point in our journey. And I believe that walking through the Psalms is a really helpful discipline throughout Lent. So, with that as my preface, let's, let's take a look at, at what these lines have for us. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me, to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host were encamped against me, yet my heart would not be afraid. And though war rose up against me, yet I would put my trust in him. Right off the bat, we get some really powerful descriptions about God. David calls him his light, his salvation, and the strength of his life. I think that we have largely become callous to the first two because they are so prevalent throughout the rest of Scripture. But they're important all the same. What would it mean for David to call God his light? David sp had spent plenty of nights in total darkness, knowing that there were wolves or enemies nearby. He lived in a time when light was the greatest source of security and comfort. What might it mean for God to be your light? Do you treat him as if he were your only comfort? Or is your quiet time a chore? Similarly, we talk about Jesus as our Savior, as our salvation. But we do everything in our power to keep ourselves from needing saving or perceiving ourselves that way. I mean, sure, we're glad that Jesus took away our sins. But that's over and done with. Most of us Americans have gotten so hypnotized by our financial independence that we forget that we are beggars no matter how our 401k looks. In line with these first two metaphors, thinking of Yahweh as the strength of our life invites images of the Lord as a protector, as a suit of armor around us. Yet, here in this poem, we can also imagine David, as he's writing this, still as a warrior, 
feeling the strength in his body, feeling his vitality and saying, no, no, not, not just my strength. The Lord is every bit of strength that I have in me. I claim none of it. Anything that I have is the gift of God. He is my only strength. So then, to start this psalm, David presents these pictures about God as reasons for his own faithful confidence, even in the midst of many troubles, even the violence of war. Continuing on with the psalm, at verse 4, we read, One thing I have desired of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his tabernacle. Indeed, in the secret place of his dwelling, he shall hide me and set me high upon a rock of stone. And now he shall lift my head above my enemies round about me. Therefore, I will offer in his dwelling place an oblation with great gladness. I will sing and speak praises unto the Lord. These few verses continue the theme of God's protective work, yes, but they add something really important. Here, David conveys the joy that he receives from being in the presence of this mighty God. He emphasizes his singular desire and focus is to be with the Lord in his temple. As I read these verses, I couldn't help but feel David's excitement. Look around at these stained glass windows. We here are surrounded by scripture in this holy place. David too, when he would go into the temple or into the tabernacle, right? He didn't have, Solomon is his son. Solomon's temple is built after David. But David's experience was still that when he went into the temple, he was surrounded by testimony of the glory of God, of his mighty works in the days of Moses, and of his identity as a God of salvation for his people. He was surrounded by objects that would remind him of this. He was surrounded by people who would proclaim the faithfulness of God around him. There was no greater joy in his life than remembering who the mighty God was. And we know that that's true because what is his response? Even as a young man, when he hears the taunts of Goliath, he says, no, 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 I have spent my time in the temple. He is blaspheming the mighty God in whose presence we delight to remain in. As we read these lines from David, we can feel the joy that he gets from seeking after the Lord, that his pilgrimage is always to get back into the presence of God. When is the last time you showed up to church feeling like you were seeking God, like you might find some special encounter with the Holy Spirit in any song, or really feel his presence in the communion? This psalm challenges us to be seekers, and if verse 8 can be trusted, 
We can know we're on the right track if we come here excited to cut our tithe checks. Keep in mind, I don't get paid by the church, so I don't have anything to gain for saying that. It hits me just the same as you. The next few verses mark a major shift in the poem. It's as if talking about going to the temple to be in the Lord's presence brought David in his mind right before the Lord. So he turns and addresses him directly in the psalm. Hearken to my voice, O Lord. When I cry unto you, have mercy upon me and hear me. You speak to my heart and say, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. Oh, hide not your face from me, nor cast your servant away in displeasure. You have been my helper. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord takes me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the right way because of my enemies. Deliver me not over to the will of my adversaries, for there are false witnesses who have risen up against me and those who speak wrong. In these verses, David is able to come before the Lord earnestly. He has already claimed that he seeks after God, but here we are invited into his actual seeking, into his doing it. He cries out that the Lord would hear him and not turn away from him. In the ancient world, to seek the face of a god or a king would be to seek their blessing. So asking God to turn his face toward him is like asking for the blessings and rewards of being a close confidant to God himself. I often have a hard time asking for God to show his favor to me. It makes me feel selfish and ungrateful. Yet one of David's great strengths was that he didn't allow himself to get caught up in those kind of thoughts. He just recognized that his best good came from God's presence, and he knew God to be a God of giving. So he didn't worry about who he was. He focused on who God was. His prayer here shows that he trusts the Lord to take him along the safe path while his enemies stumble and fall. Finally, the poet shifts once again to address the reader and offer a testimony of God's goodness. I would utterly have fainted had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Oh, wait for the Lord. Be strong and he shall comfort your heart. Oh, put your trust in the Lord much like the wanderer from our first poem, we see total exhaustion countered by the hope of an encounter with God. We can feel it in our hearts that David turns from this pit of despair and then sees just a glimmer that leads him out of it. But this renewal of energy and strength is not enough. Our poet here closes the psalm by sharing his confidence, commanding others to place their trust in the Lord as he has done, so that we too might feel his favor. To wrap things up, I have two very brief points. 
The first point. The season of Lent cannot just be a season of no fun before a season of lots of fun. Lent has meaning for us as believers only if it is about seeking Christ. Thinking of Lent as a pilgrimage is just one traditional way of orienting ourselves to seeking God's presence. That's something that uh, if, if any of you are going through Malcolm Geith's devotional, he's, a, he's another Anglican priest, but he kind of has a poetry anthology th- through Lent, and he, he takes us on a pilgrimage, but it's a, it's a traditional thing. Anglican, Catholic, goes all the way back. But there are other avenues that you might go down as you go on this Lenten process. Whatever it is, the only thing that you must really not do is make this season just about um, your own self-sacrifice. This isn't just, I'm going to beat myself up for the sake of beating myself up and seeing how much discipline I have to do something for God. That's not the point. We've all done it. Totally fine if that's where you find yourself. But your best good is from finding a way to turn this to seeking Christ. My second point. I know that many of you don't care a lick about poetry or feel like you can't understand it. Some of you, it pains me to say, probably believe that figurative language is a waste of time and wish we could just get to the facts. Lucky for you lot, I gave up on being patronizing for Lent, so I'll say not another word about it. But seriously, here's the deal. I've walked us through Psalm 27 this morning because I believe that really carefully reading a psalm a day is a really good discipline during Lent. It helps you connect to this heart song of God and oftentimes expresses the yearning that we feel in this season as we have denied ourselves of many things. Paying attention to the metaphors and the major shifts can help stir up your own imagination, which will help you connect more deeply in your spiritual journey through Lent. So, yet, whether you take my advice or not, take this encouragement as we press on. Oh, wait for the Lord. Be strong. And he shall comfort your heart. Oh, put your trust in the Lord. Amen.